We have no idea what the Lord was going through when he was tortured, when he was hanging on the cross, when he was laid in the tomb. But he was only there for three days, wasn't he? Praise God for that. He rose victorious. And because of that, we can have victory. And even as Jesus said, because I live, you shall live also. So let's go to him now and uh, ask the Lord's blessings as we dive into his word and get prepared to partake of Holy Communion. Let's pray. Our God and Father, so many people look at you as, as angry, wanting to zap them out of existence for the least little thing that's done wrong. But Lord, you're good. You create all things with a word. You're holy and you are love. And from the day that Adam and Eve blew it, they went their own way. They rebelled. You had a plan in place. Even before you created them, mankind, you had a plan in place, knowing that we would fall. And Lord, even as we sang, you took the fall, Lord Jesus. And you thought of your father above all as you were hanging on the cross. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for loving us the way that you did, for dying on the cross, for rising again, being victorious over death, and now seated at the Father's right hand, interceding for us. It's now, Lord, I pray that you prepare us for today as we look into your word, as, as we also be prepared to uh, partake of the elements of your flesh, of your blood, to remind us of what you've done for us. We thank you, Father, for these things. In Jesus' name. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Ephesians. So paper or pixel, doesn't matter. So we're going to talk a little bit today about the book of Ephesians. And I thought I was glad when January 1st, 2022 came into town. And it was a wedding here. Josh and Katie got married. And then a couple of days later, I came down with something. I don't know what it is. And I can neither confirm nor deny that I had the Omarona. But praise the Lord, I'm over it. Because I had never been that sick in my entire life. That's not a hyperbolic statement. It was just horrendous. So now I'm rejoicing that January 2022 is almost in our rear view. So maybe it'll get better next month. I don't know. And so many of us have been away from corporate worship at, at Grace United through the sickness and through the weather and things like that. And so my prayer is and, and hope that we'll all begin to return again and to have fellowship and to worship together. Indeed, it's a special day today, fifth Sunday. And we know what that means, don't we? Food later, right? That's the issue. But we're going to have communion, first of all, first and foremost. And then we'll have a dinner. You know, we observe the Lord's Supper in here. And then we're going to go into the fellowship hall in there and have a meal. Now, two meals today. And, you know, as we know, the Lord's Supper is not really a supper, is it? Now, anybody who knows Mark Lowry, you know, he's, he's a pretty good guy. But he didn't call communion the Lord's Supper. He calls it the Lord's Snack. Yeah, I, I, I think he's right here. It's the snack. But we know that the Lord's Supper is not about the meal anyway. It's not about the food. It's about remind us, the Lord, what he's done for us in his death and resurrection. As we partake of the bread and drink of the cup, we remember there was a time in history that the Lord Jesus Christ hung on a cross for the sins of the world. As we partake of the elements, we make it personal. When I eat the bread and I drink of the cup, 
I'm saying that Jesus died for my sins. All of them. Hallelujah. But let's not forget the other part. You know, Paul said it well, and he said, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. But we have a living hope as followers of Jesus. We remember his promise, and I said it a couple minutes ago. He said to all these disciples, because I live, you will live also. Regardless of sickness, praise God, regardless of accidents, regardless of old age and having lived a long life, if you know Christ as your Lord and Savior this morning, if you're a follower of his, you will see him on the other side and you will live forever with him in paradise as I will. Praise him. So to get us ready to partake of the elements today, I want us to walk through some parts of the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. I don't remember when Kitty and I began to go through in our devotional time the letter of Ephesians, but it's been a little while. And we've been reading slowly and, and, and carefully through this letter. And what we have found was absolutely amazing. And I want to share just a few insights from our reading through our meditations, focusing in on the first three chapters. Now I say a few because there is so much there. You know, there's not enough time to share it all. And as we go through these chapters, I want to demonstrate for us a couple of things. First, the insights that we gained were in large measure simply a result of careful, prayerful reading, slow reading of the text. Careful and slow reading cause us to stop and ask questions of the text that we otherwise would not have asked. Seldom do we go outside these chapters and, and turn our reading into a Bible study. In other words, Anybody can glean great insights into God's word just by carefully and slowly and prayerfully reading the text. Second, I want to offer something that I think many of us have missed as we've studied these chapters. And to be specific, I think that Paul is talking more than just the church in Ephesus in this letter. And what clued me in, again, was a result of careful, slow reading of the text. I want to say before we walk through these chapters that I in no way claim to have a corner on the truth. I've not received new revelation from God, okay? So don't have to worry about that. So much has been written, though, about this magnificent letter, hasn't it? So many sermons and teachings have been presented. You know, what more can be said about Ephesians that hasn't already been said? But with that said, I believe and can add to the ongoing conversation of what Ephesians is. Without a doubt, some of the insights that I'll be sharing with you today will sound a little bit different than what you have always heard when you've heard Ephesians presented and studying being preached. My prayer for us is that you will go with me today, withholding judgment and not rejecting what I say out of hand immediately. I ask you to consider my gleanings on my meditation and study these chapters, perhaps adding to your understanding as well. I also want to say that the conclusion I've reached with these chapters is the traditional one. Paul tells us that the Lord gave him a mystery. And what is this mystery? Well, spoiler alert, the Gentiles have been included in God's plan of salvation. Now, I don't think anybody's here Jewish. And so all of us are Gentiles. And aren't you glad that God has included Gentiles in his plan of salvation? 
See, it's not only the Jews that the Lord's considered as his people. It's a marvelous thing that the Lord has invited the Gentiles to come to the table of salvation, to the table of the new covenant established by the Lord Jesus the night he was betrayed. But I will also say, though, that the new insights that Kitty and I have gleaned from these chapters has served to greatly enrich my understanding of and appreciation for what the Lord has done in salvation. And so I ask you, I urge you, brethren and sisterin, to hear what I have to say, to mull it over, and if it enriches your understanding of Ephesians, wonderful. But be a Berean. Examine these things. Wrestle with me as I wrestle with the text. Compare Scripture with Scripture. And may the Lord use this in our lives to sharpen our understanding of His Word that we might know Him and might apply His Word more faithfully to our lives. Now, before I refer to the text, let me just share with you what really began our dive into Ephesians. Now, of all the things to get our attention, it was pronouns. Now, in the culture, pronouns get people's attention, right? But it got our attention as we read through Ephesians. Paul changed pronouns often here and very quickly. And sometimes, we're, if we're not careful, we'll pass over these things that are very important. And we know that nothing in Scripture is wasted. Would you agree with me on that? Everything is there for a reason. And it was because of Paul's frequent changes of pronouns that prompted Kitty and me to ask questions that I have seldom asked the text. And I want to quickly go through the first chapter of Ephesians. Again, we're going to end up at the middle and really at the end of chapter 3 today. But I want to go through uh, chapter 1 pretty quickly because the pronouns have been pretty consistent here, the first few verses. Now, as you see, Paul refers to we in these verses. He changes his pronouns in verse 13, though, for a reason. And we'll see that in a minute. And so after greeting the Ephesian church, Jews and Gentiles, Christian Jews, Christian Gentiles in the first couple of verses, Paul then deluges the Ephesians of so many blessings, starting in verse 4. He chose us that we might be holy and blameless in him. In verse 5, he predestined us for adoption as sons to Christ. In verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. In verses 9 and 10, he made known to us the mystery of his will to unite all things in him. And Paul's going to talk about this unification in chapter 2. In verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance. Well, so many blessings and so little time to even list them, let alone dive into them. But we need to go on. Now let's look at verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now question. Who were the first to hope in Christ? In a word, it was the Jew. The Jew was the first to hope in Christ. Remember, Jesus had 12 disciples, all Jewish. Book of Acts, day of Pentecost, all Jews. Remember how Paul actually breaks it down in Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew, what? First, and also to the Greek or the Gentile. So it seems clear that Paul is saying something in this treasure chest of blessings that we as Gentiles normally miss. When Paul says we in verses 3 to 12, he's referring to 
Jewish believers. Now, before you write me off, let me quickly say this, that Paul includes Gentiles as well, and we're going to see this. But in these verses right here, if we didn't have any other verses, we see Paul's emphasis on Jewish believers. Let's look now at verse 13. In him, you also, notice the change, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Again, notice the change, pronouns. From we to you. Now, why do you suppose Paul did that? There's a reason for it, and we're going to see it shortly. But notice what he does in verse 14 now. He changes pronouns again. The Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, not your inheritance, our inheritance, until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of his glory. In other words, Messianic Jews and believing Gentiles together are included in the blessings that Paul listed in the first part of the chapter. I'm convinced that Paul is going somewhere significant, and that's why he makes the distinction between us and you. And then in verses 15 to 23, Paul writes out a prayer for all the Ephesian believers, Jews and Gentiles, and us by extension. Obviously, Paul is not with them. That's why he wrote a letter. He's a little preoccupied right now, because where is he? He's in Rome under house arrest. But because the clock is so unkind, I want to point out just one amazing prayer request that Paul makes on behalf of the church. It's found in verse 18 and the first part of verse 19. And by the way, when you don't know what to pray for, when you think about your beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, open up the scriptures, the Paul's letters, and find Paul's prayers. And pray these prayers on behalf of your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I would like for us to simply recite this amazing prayer request together. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? What an amazing prayer request. Now, when Kitty and I read this prayer, it was almost as if we got it immediately at the same time. Notice what Paul says in regard to inheritance. Specifically, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance? And what do we get with this insight? Two things. First, and it's almost beyond belief, that the inheritance Paul talks about is God's inheritance. And what is God's inheritance? It is, wait for it, us. It is us. God considers us as his people, his inheritance. What's that all about? Well, words like treasure and extreme value and great cost comes to mind when you think about inheritance. For when does one receive an inheritance? After a loved one dies. And who died? Christ paid the price so that God could have us as his valuable treasure, his inheritance. God considers all of us who are his people extremely valuable in his eyes. Isn't it amazing? Truly, this is something beyond words. 
But lest we think it's pretty much individualistic, you know, hey, Jesus and me. No, that's not what he's talking about here. It's that all of us together as God's people, he considers us his valuable inheritance. Now, of course, God does consider us individually as valuable. But the context of this passage is that the Father considers all of us together as having extreme value to him in Christ. And that led Kitty and me to ask a question concerning an application of this request. Every time somebody comes into the kingdom of God, what happens to God's inheritance? It gets richer. It enriches. Isn't it amazing? My brothers and sisters, if that's not an incentive to give the gospel of Christ, I don't know what is. God has given us the privilege of contributing to the enriching of God's inheritance every time we give the gospel to a non-believer. Every time we minister to someone in Jesus' name, it's an opportunity to enrich the blessings and the inheritance of God. Let's be about the business of the privilege of enriching the Father's inheritance. And now chapter 2. As good as that is, we're going to chapter 2. I want us to take this a little bit slower because Paul, quickly, he, he changes pronouns here. And so let's start at verse 1 and 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but you walked in them. What does that sound like to you? Almost like the walking dead, doesn't it? The you had life in this life, but you were separated from God. You were following the prince of the power of the air. And who is the prince of the power of the air? It's the evil one, Satan. Unsaved people follow Satan. That doesn't sound very flattering, does it? But that's God's truth here given to us. Now, verse 3. We, again, notice the change of pronouns. We all once lived the passions of our flesh, sinful nature. We carried out the desires of the body and mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Hmm. So what's going on here? Two groups of people. You were by nature children of God's wrath. We also were as well. So who's the you? And who's the we? Unsaved Gentiles and unsaved Jews. That's pretty dire circumstances, don't you think? But in verses 4 and 5, we see some glorious good news. Unsaved Gentiles and unsaved Jews who were spiritually dead, separated from God, were made alive in Christ. Is that an incredible thing to think about? But notice now something that's totally unexpected in the text. Look at the end of verse 5. By grace, finish it. You have been saved. Wait a second. Hold on here. Paul just said at the beginning of verse 5 that God has made both unsaved Jews and unsaved Gentiles alive in Christ. We would expect to say, by grace, we have been saved. But Paul doesn't say that. Paul says, you have been saved by grace. Why did he do that? Hold that thought because we're going to see it again in a couple verses. Look at verse 7. And here it is something we would expect Paul to write. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. Again, Jews and Gentiles. 
God has poured out the riches of his grace on all of us, both saved Jews and saved Gentiles, but made alive in Christ. And now Paul, in verses 8 and 9, he's at it again. Look at this. For by grace, who has been saved? You have been saved by grace through faith. And this is not your doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one would boast. So we have a puzzlement, don't we? Verse 5 and verse 8, Paul emphasizes the you, the Gentiles have been saved by grace. But aren't both Jews and Gentiles saved by grace? Aren't they? Why did Paul do this? There's a reason. Why does Paul focus like a laser on the Gentiles being saved? Again, there's a reason for this. And now Paul goes into verse 10. And notice what he does again. He changes pronouns. For we are his workmanship in Christ Jesus created for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Again, Jews, Gentiles, we have been prepared to walk in good works. So what do we have so far? God has saved both Jews and Gentiles by grace in his kindness toward us in Christ. But now Paul highlights that the Gentiles are saved by grace. The gist of verses 4 to 7. So why is God emphasizing the Gentiles being saved by grace? We find an answer, verses 11 to 22. And so let's look at verse 11. Therefore, remember, at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, what is made in the flesh by hands. So what's this all about? And when did this happen? And who called them that? Who called the Gentiles the uncircumcision? Well, simply, there was a group of Jews who saw the Gentiles as creatures not to be associated with at all. And what's that group called? The Pharisees. They prided themselves in being completely separate from the icky, dirty, tainted, abhorrent creatures called Gentiles. It's been said that a pious Pharisee would wake up every morning and pray like this. God, I thank you I'm not a woman or a Gentile dog. The Pharisees refer to these Gentiles as the uncircumcision. Now, why did they say that? Because they were uncircumcised. They weren't Jews. But the Pharisees were the circumcision. And they were proud of it. Thank you very much. And in their B.C. days, the Gentiles were dead in their sins. They were dead in their trespasses, as Paul reminded them early part of chapter chapter 2. So this begs the question, why in the world would the Pharisees care about these Gentiles in the church of Ephesus? Why would they get close enough to even label them as the uncircumcision? Simply put, there were some Pharisees who apparently became followers of Jesus. And we see this in the book of Acts, specifically around Acts chapter 15. Were these Pharisees truly Christians? Maybe, maybe not. I I can't speak for them, but we can say at least this. They had a lot of baggage. (laughs) And here was their MO. The Pharisees insisted that if the Gentile was to become a Christian, he had to become a Jew first. 
and the telltale sign of becoming a Jew was he's to be circumcised. And that's not all. Remember why Jesus called out the Pharisees. If you read the Gospels carefully, you know he called them out all the time, didn't he? They were, many of them were blatant hypocrites. But there was something else about these Pharisees. They developed a set of teachings that in their minds were just as authoritative as the written Torah, the written word of God. These teachings were called various things, called the traditions of the elders, the oral traditions, the oral Torah. And some Pharisees even went to go so far as to say that Moses gave not only the written Torah, but also the oral Torah as well. So you got the oral traditions. You got the the word of God on the same level, according to these Pharisees. And now the Pharisees, though, they had a lot of influence. I can't imagine that, but they had a whole lot of influence of the rank-and-file Jew. Everybody believed them and their ways. And when the Pharisees spoke, the rank-and-file Jews sat up and took a listen. And it was these people that Paul called the circumcision. So what was happening here? These demanded the uncircumcision become circumcision or become Jews. And they were to become that way Pharisee style, holding to the oral traditions as well. Now we're going to see this in a minute, why I'm convinced that this is a vital part of Paul's argument in this letter. And I frankly think that many people have missed it and they've gone through this. Now many Jews did not stay in Jerusalem. I mean, that was their capital. That was their headquarters, but many of them didn't stay there. No, many of them followed Paul around like little puppies everywhere he went. You know, those, you know, those little annoying puppies, you know what? Barking at the heels and nipping at the heels. They caused trouble everywhere they went. And everywhere Paul went, preaching to the Gentiles, the insurgible riches of God's grace in Christ, the Pharisees were right there demanding that the Gentiles adopt their legalistic ways, adopt their dogma. So as I see it, here's a picture Paul is painting in the chapter. Throughout this letter, Paul is addressing Jews and Gentiles, believing Jews, believing Gentiles, reminding them of the past, etc. This much is clear. But I'm also convinced that Paul is addressing the Pharisees there as well. And this is the reason, as I see it, that Paul focuses in on the fact that the Gentiles were saved by grace because he was reminding these Pharisees that, hey, listen, these Gentiles are okay too. As I mentioned, Jews and Gentiles are saved by grace. Again, in verses 5 and 8 of chapter 2, he says to the Gentiles, you are saved by grace. And so as Paul is speaking here to two groups of people, On one hand, he encourages the Gentiles, reminds them that they are saved by grace. And then on the other hand, he's rebuking the Pharisees. And in essence says to them, hey, Pharisee, back off from the Gentiles because they're followers of Jesus. Leave them alone. But it's not as though the Pharisees were wrong on all accounts. Look at verses 12 and 13 of chapter 2. Remember that you Gentiles were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
Notice the double-edged sword of truth here. The Gentiles, truly, they were separated from Christ. They were not part of God's people. They were strangers to the covenants. They had no hope. They were without God. And all of that's true. And the Pharisees would resonate with that. They would say, oh yes, absolutely. These icky Gentiles, over here, we're over here. But here comes the rebuke. The Gentiles, who were at one time, they were far off. Now what? They've come near to God's people and to God by the blood of Christ. Not by circumcision, Pharisees. Not by the oral Torah, Pharisees. But by the blood of Christ, by his death. And his death brought them near to God and to God's people, the believing Jews. And in verses 14 to 16, we see Paul, as it were, now nailing the Pharisees to the wall in a massive rebuke. For he himself is in Christ. He is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh, his crucifixion, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Can't you hear Paul's rebuke here? Pharisees, Christ is our peace, both Jew and Gentile. He's broken down the dividing wall of hostility between us. Christ abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances so that both Jew and Gentile might become completely unified with nothing between them. No dividing wall, no oral Torah can keep the Jew and Gentile apart for both are now one in Christ. I said earlier, I've got a contribution to make to the ongoing dialogue, ongoing teaching in the book of Ephesians. Now, this contribution, I believe, is not just a theological position. It's vital we understand this. I believe that many have missed the point of Paul here in this in these verses, and I think it's to their detriment. And so here's my contribution. It's a negative thing, and it's also a positive thing. It has to do with what Christ, through his death, abolished or did away with, and what it did not abolish or do away with. Again, found in these verses. First is what Christ's death did not do away with. What he did not abolish. He did not abolish the law of commandments. Let me let that sink in. He did not abolish the law of commandments. That ought to be pretty obvious. God has never taken away from his people the obligation for us to obey him. How many people say, I've got freedom in Christ, I can do whatever I want to do? How many people, the judgment that Jesus is going to look at these same people and say, you know what, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, God has given us, as his people, the requirement to obey him. And I'll explain why in a second here. See, the Lord Jesus himself told us that obedience to the commands of God is how we show what? That we love him. Obedience to the commands. He also said that the key to abiding in him is that we keep his commands. John 15.10 says this, 
He's talking to his disciples here, right? The night before he was crucified, he said this to his disciples and us by extension. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. By the way, isn't that amazing? Jesus says this about his relationship with the father. I am obedient to my father's commandments and I'm abiding in his love. Amazing thing. And it's absolutely vital we understand this. And let me say this. Eternity hinges on this. Where we spend eternity hinges on this. John 15, 6 says this. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. I don't want to make any comments. I want this to hit us full force. It is absolutely essential that we abide in Christ. How do we abide in Christ? We keep his commandment. This is not work salvation. But Jesus gives us a very important thing that we need to think about and do. There's another reason why Christ's death did not abolish the law of commandments. Faithful Jews' very lives were wrapped up in the keeping of the commandments. Isn't that right? If they couldn't keep the commandments of God, they couldn't be faithful Jews. See, if Jesus abolished the law of commandments, then a Jew could no longer be a Jew, could he? We saw earlier how the Gentiles didn't have to become Jews in order to become Christians. In the same way, Jews don't have to stop being Jews in order to be Christian. Jews and Gentiles are Jews and Gentiles. Jews are Jews, Gentiles are Gentiles, but all are one in Christ. We don't have to change being Jewish. We don't have to change being Gentiles in order to be Christians. So if Christ's death did not abolish the law of commandments, what did it do away with? The text tells us. It was the expression of ordinances, of the legalistic ordinances that the Pharisees held up as on par with Scripture. Literally, what did Christ abolish? He abolished the oral traditions. He abolished the oral Torah, not the written Torah. In other words, Gentiles don't have to become circumcised. They don't have to obey the oral traditions. What the saved Gentiles and the saved Jews had to obey was what? The written Torah. Moses said, God's people, saved Jews, saved Gentiles, obey the law of God. I mentioned last week's message how the Lord in the Old Testament days and how the Lord in the New Testament days, what he expects of his people, it's exactly the same. God saves people, makes them his own, and then he tells them how to live. That's Old Testament. New Testament, God saves people, makes them his own, and tells them how to live. New Testament, same thing, isn't it? It doesn't change. Now, again, notice the order. It is salvation first, and then it's how to live. Not in legalistic man-made laws, but in divine revelation of his ways. And it's this distinction, I believe, that Paul was making in verse 15. 
Christ's death did not abolish the law of commandments. Christ's death abolished the expression of ordinances, the oral Torah. Literally, this word ordinances is the Greek word that we get our word dogma from. It's man-made decrees. We don't have to obey those things. Remember how Paul said that Christ broke down that dividing wall that separates Jew and Gentile? Now, he ought to know a thing or two about the dividing wall. He himself was a Pharisee, right? And in the temple in Jerusalem, there was a literal dividing wall that separated the court of the Gentiles from the courts of the Jews. This wall was called a soreg. It was a wall about three feet high. And again, it separated the court of the Gentiles from the courts of the Jews, which were a little further in. And then you had the temple. So let me show you a couple pictures here. Now you see on the left-hand side, you got the court of Gentiles. And then you got the Sorig, which is on the right-hand side. But you see it's like a little raised platform. There's a wall. That's the dividing wall that separates the Jews and the Gentiles. And also, you've got this. This was a plaque. And this plaque shows how deadly serious the Jews were against the Gentiles from going past the court of the Gentiles. About 150 years ago, a French archaeologist discovered this plaque. It's a limestone block, about 22 inches long, about 33 inches high. And here is what it says. No Gentile may enter within the railing around the sanctuary and within the enclosure. Whoever should be caught will render himself liable to the death penalty, which will inevitably follow. And that was placed for all the Gentiles to see. They were deadly serious about separation. And what I find fascinating, though, is that one of the main reasons why Paul was writing Ephesians is because he was in Rome under house arrest. He was waiting to hear from Caesar Nero to get his day in court. Because of the Soric, because of the court of the Gentiles, and because of the separation. Remember the story, I think around Acts 21. Paul went to the temple in Jerusalem, and he, as a Torah-observant Jew who was a Christian, was making a purification rite in the temple. Well, guess what happened? Paul had some enemies. And fake news travels fast. They accused Paul of taking a Gentile out of the court of the Gentiles past that Sorek. They dragged Paul out of the temple and they were literally in the process of beating him to death when the Romans came and literally pulled Paul away from the enraged Jews. And that began Paul's prison ministry of four years. Two years in Caesarea and two years in Rome. All because of the intensity and the ferocity that the Pharisees sought to keep themselves and the Gentiles separate. But the Sorek, that wall of separation, was not put there by the commandment of God, was it? It was put there by the decrees, by the dogma. See, the Jews were supposed to be the light to the Gentiles, but that's not the way they set it up in the temple. See, these ordinances, these man-made decrees, is what Paul said was the dividing wall of hostility. In verses 17 to 22, in chapter 2, Ephesians, Paul continues his encouragement of the saved Gentiles and the rebuke of the Pharisees. Let me sum up these verses. We see that the Gentiles in the Ephesian church 
had the same access to the Father as did the Jews. Pharisees, listen up. They were now fellow citizens and members of the household of God. This household is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ himself being the most important stone, holding all things together, and by him all things are measured. Saved Jews and saved Gentiles are being built together in a fitting place for the Lord by his spirit. If this is not enough encouragement for the Gentiles, and this is not enough rebuke for the Pharisees, Paul now reveals the mystery that the Spirit of God had given to him and the other apostles and prophets. And that's found in chapter 3, verse 6. So let's look down there real quick. It says, this is a mystery. And the mystery is this, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. It's not about oral Torah. It's not about circumcision. It's through the gospel. The Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers in the promise of Christ. Hallelujah. And so now we come full circle. Jesus spent decades living among his people, several years training his disciples, his Jewish disciples, and it all came down to what we call his passion. It began with the Last Supper that he would have with his men before he was crucified. He told them that broken flat bread represented his body that was to be broken. He told them that the cup containing wine that they were to drink represented his new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sin. And on that night, the Lord Jesus began to fulfill the promise Yahweh made to write the Torah on the hearts of his people. That his people would really know him. That he would remember their sins no more. And within a matter of hours of that meal, the Lord Jesus was nailed to the cross, suffering all the hell that you and I deserve. The sinless one took away your sin, took away my sin, the sin of all mankind down through the ages upon himself. And when he was on that cross, he cried out, it is finished, paid in full. A perfect, complete, Sacrifice. Jesus paid the sin debt of every person who has ever lived. The hatred God has for sin was poured out upon his son on the cross. The love God has for broken, sinful, rebellious humanity was perfectly and absolutely demonstrated on the cross of Christ. What mercy, what love, what grace. I'm going to ask my brother Greg to come and, and help us to pass out the elements and have him pray over it. But before he prays and we pass out the bread and cup, I think it will be appropriate for him to read the prayer that Paul had prayed for the Ephesians, thus by extension. See, Paul offered this prayer about the unspeakable blessings of Christ that he has given his people, again, who are in Christ. If you're in Christ this morning, Paul is praying this 
for you down to the ages. This was recorded for you and for me. So Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you this, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do so far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Father, we bow before you, knowing that you are faithful, forever faithful, and that you are all-knowing, and that from the very beginning, you were able to place into, into motion your plan of our redemption so that we might become an inheritance to you. So that we might, when all is said and done, fall down before you, casting our crowns at your feet, crying out with all of heaven, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. For you deserve our worship. For you deserve all honor. For you deserve all glory. And so as we partake in these elements, we remember the sacrifice that you made the physical breaking of your body and the spiritual covenant that you put in place with your blood. May we be found worthy of your sacrifice and bring you honor and glory in all that we do. Amen. Before we partake of the elements, it will be good for us at this time to have our corporate prayer. Let's, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, your name is holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Hear the words of the Apostle Paul is found in 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the night on which the Lord Jesus was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread, and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Our God and Father, words do not do justice to the, the depth of your love for us, for the hatred of sin you have, for the amazing thing that you did 
to redeem us and the price that your son paid for us. Shedding his blood, the sinless one, all of our sin was placed upon him. We don't get it, Lord. We don't understand it. And, and even to know that it pleased you for this to happen. Again, Lord, so that the inheritance could be enriched. Lord, we are so humbled. And we praise you, Lord, for the salvation that you've given us in Christ. So, Father, now I, I thank you that we can continue in our worship. I thank you, Lord, that we can we can give of just a, a small portion of the, the resources that you have so richly blessed us with. I pray, Father, that you'll help us to, to give, not expecting anything in return, but knowing we can never outgive you. Lord, you give us everything. So help us, Lord, give with a heart that's rejoicing and full of full of thanks and praise. And Father, also as we, we sing our final song, may we sing that as an act of worship to you as well. And then, Lord, as we go to the fellowship hall and, and have our dinner, we, we pray your blessings on the food. We thank you for it, Lord. Thank you for your bounty to us. Help us have a great time of fellowship around the table. And we'll give you thanks for these things, Lord. Thanks don't do it enough, but we give you thanks. In Jesus' name.